Good morning. If you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Our uh, attention is going to be primarily in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, but we'll read starting in chapter 2, verse 23. Before we read God's word, let's pray. Gracious Father, it is by your word that you called everything that is into existence. It is by your word that you bring life from death and make all things new. It is by your word that you speak promises to us, the promises we cling to in faith and hope. We humbly ask this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would awaken our hearts and minds, that we might receive your promises, hear your summons, and have the strength to respond by faith. Please bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of your word this day. We pray these things in the name of the one who is, who was, and who is yet to come, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please hear the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And together we say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, when I was about five or six years old, my family installed a pool in the backyard, and that made us uh, quite the hit among my friends. We were the only um, people amongst my friend group to have a pool. And my father was a uh, pretty wise man, and he knew that, um, based on his children, primarily me, that there would need to be some rules that were implemented pretty quickly about uh, the use of the pool. And a lot of the rules were just good common sense rules that you would expect uh, concerning a pool. But uh, some of the rules um, kind of uh, were of the making of like, do you really have to say that? Do you really have to have a rule telling somebody not to do that? Um, And one of those rules was the pool is for people only. Not non-people, as in not frogs or turtles or snakes or anything else that we might think about uh, placing into the pool. 
Now, I have to admit that this was a rule that uh, my friends and I, we didn't really understand the reasoning behind this. This didn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Water is water. So if a creek is water where a turtle can live, then surely the pool in our backyard is uh, sufficient as well. So one summer morning, my best friend, John Bradshaw, and I, we decided we were going to enter into the lucrative business of crawdad farming. So we got our buckets bright and early. We went down to the creek behind our parents' house. We spent all day filling our buckets with crawdads. And then we returned home that evening and promptly filled the pool with crawdads and went to bed pretty pleased with ourselves. My father woke me really early the next morning. He always got up early to clean the pool. And he told me to come outside, and I went outside with him. And sure enough, um, our lucrative business was no longer lucrative as all of the crawdads were were dead. Um, And it was a good—I realize now it should have been a good lesson had I had ears to hear my father at that point. It took a few more years before I realized— the wisdom of what he was saying to me on this day. But what I learned is, is that my father's rules aren't arbitrary, right? Like they're not whimsical. He didn't make rules up concerning the pool out of thin air, but they had a reason. And and, and the rules told me something that was true about the world. So the the rules that he established confirmed something about reality, and those rules conformed to that reality. It reinforced what was true and was meant to protect that truth. It was meant to safeguard that truth. It was meant to really bless and enable that truth to flourish. And what I should have learned at that point with this particular episode was that Crawdads and highly chlorinated water uh, don't do well together. And so, therefore, don't put crawdads in the pool. I never did that again, but we did experiment with other um, critters. We'll just leave it at that. So my father's rules, from his perspective, my father's rules really were gifts that he intended to give to me and that he intended for me to receive a good gift that was meant to enable life to go well, to bless life. And today, as we look at this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 3, I want us to think about what it looks like when we no longer see God's laws, we no longer see his ways in the world as good gifts meant to bless life, meant to protect life, meant to establish life, But instead, we just see them as things to be merely obeyed. What does it look like when we fail to see God's laws as good gifts and we fail to receive them as gifts before we obey them? So I want you to turn uh, to Mark chapter 1. We're going to uh, start, just uh, do a little bit of background to get us to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Because the passage that we're looking at today is actually the end of a fairly long section of Scripture in Mark chapter 1. And it's a section that begins very well. Jesus' public ministry starts off 
um, on the right foot, if you will. But by the time we get to uh, chapter 3, verse 6, we see that things have really deteriorated. And it's important for us to really get a sense of just how bad things are going at this point. But you see in Mark 1, 21, Jesus, it's on a Sabbath. He enters into a synagogue. He's teaching, and the people there are astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Don't forget that word destroy, because it's the word that's used to describe what the Pharisees intend to do to Jesus in Mark 3, verse 6. And Jesus, of course, uh, essentially says to the unclean spirit, well, yes, I have come to destroy you because you are opposed to life. You ravage life and I am for life. And so therefore I have to destroy you. And so he casts out the unclean spirit and all the people are amazed. They question among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. So things are going quite well. But by the time we get to uh, chapter 2, and the first 12 verses in a passage we're very familiar with where Jesus heals the man who is paralyzed, who's lowered through the roof. We begin to see pushback to Jesus's ministry. We begin to see some opposition. When Jesus tells the man, son, your sins are forgiven, the scribes who are there begin to question. Now, who can do this? God is the only one who can forgive sins, not this Jesus. And so it's the first time we've seen some pushback, some resistance In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, that resistance picks up. And Jesus is essentially not just associated with sinners and tax collectors, but he's basically accused of being a sinner and a tax collector. Because who you associate with reflects who you really are in the thinking of his day. And then it continues to go downhill. He and his disciples are questioned about their practices of fasting. And then in this passage we'll look at here at the end of chapter 2 in a second, we see that he is basically accused of violating the Sabbath law. And it's important for us to, to kind of get this big picture because this is no, this is no minor um, confrontation or conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is as oppositional as it gets in Mark's gospel. So much so that Mark uh, speaks of Jesus as having an anger and being grieved towards the Pharisees. And the language that Mark use, uses, he only uses one other place in his gospel. So there's an intensity to this, and it's important for us to see this because that will help us to understand just how important it is that we see God's laws as good gifts meant to be received by us in order to bless our lives. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 23. Once again, we see it's a a Sabbath. Uh, Most of the conflicts that take place in Mark's gospel early on revolve around the Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples are going through the grain fields. They're obviously hungry, so they begin to rub grains between their fingers in order to get something to eat. And the language of the Pharisees is interesting. They say to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, notice what they don't ask. They don't ask Jesus, are what they doing, is what they're doing, is it lawful or unlawful? Right? They already know the answer. They've already made their decision. They have formed their judgment. What Jesus' disciples are doing 
it, it is unlawful. And so they essentially accuse Jesus of endorsing or of supporting uh, practices that violate the Sabbath. And Jesus responds by pointing to a story in David, and it's, it's a fun story, and we can't talk about it too much. Um, but he essentially says, listen, don't you, don't you realize that hunger is just it's a basic human need? They're hungry. They need to eat. So they're eating. What, what, is, what, what is wrong with this? How is this a violation of anything? Uh, they have a need. Their need is being met. But in the Pharisees' understanding of how Sabbath works, um, Sabbath is not something that is first and foremost a gift that's given to us to meet our needs, to sustain our lives. It is first and foremost something that is simply to be obeyed. And so when Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, we have to understand Jesus is now the one who is doing the accusing. And what he is saying to the Pharisees is, is you've got it backwards. You flipped the script and that can be devastating for us. God didn't sit around and think about the Sabbath first and then think about, oh, what can I make that would obey the Sabbath? As if the Sabbath, as if what is created to obey is created strictly for Sabbath, as if the Sabbath is the priority. Jesus says, no, God created humanity. And there's a truth about humanity. The truth is, is that humanity we're creatures, and creatures need rest. We need rest from work. We need rest from the things that wear us down. And so God gives the gift of Sabbath to his creatures to meet that need. Jesus says you've got it entirely backwards. If you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, I want us to look at the two passages in the Old Testament where God, in the giving of his law, gives this commandment concerning the Sabbath. So the first time in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the important thing I want us to see here is that when God initially gives the the Sabbath commandments, he grounds Sabbath in creational realities. And, And he essentially says what we just talked about, your creatures... You work six days, not seven, because if you don't, then you get run down as creatures. Creatures require rest. Therefore, you take rest. And so some of this commandment is is grounded in the wisdom of how God made the world to work. But an important part of this commandment is, is what it does for us in terms of helping us know our place in the world, helping us know our place in the universe. This commandment, of all the commandments especially, reminds us who we are and who we aren't. Reminds us that we are creatures, not the Creator. Reminds us that we are people, that we are not God. As we rest from our work and the world keeps on going, as things still continue to happen, the effect that that should have on us is, is, oh, 
Me working is not what causes the world to go round. The sun continues to rise. It continues to set. Seasons still continue, right? We play this part, but we cannot become confused on the part that we play. So Sabbath is about identity, right? And it's about an ethic that comes from that identity. It tells us we are people, not God. So live as people, not try to live as God. And that is a tremendous gift, according to Scripture, God sees that as a tremendous blessing for us to protect us from idolatry, to protect us from trying to be what we're not and to do what we were never intended to do. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where Moses restates the giving of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you." You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And we see here a little bit of a different emphasis when Moses uh, retells the giving of the law. Sabbath is not so much grounded in creational realities as it's grounded in redemptive realities. God reminds the people, you were once slaves. You remember what it was like to work seven days a week, week after week, month after month. You know what it was like not to receive rest. I rescued you from that. I delivered you from that. Now you are a people who knows the good gift of rest. So, Israel, make sure that you give that good gift of rest to everybody who is within your borders. Everybody gets Sabbath rest. Because you, Israel, you know what it's like not to have that rest. And so you will be a people of compassion. You will be a people of empathy. And you will be a people who should be glad to extend that rest to everybody who is within your borders. So we see that God uh, gives Sabbath the way he understands us. This is a wonderful gift to Israel. It is a blessing to them that they should receive this gift with great joy. But what we see in Mark chapter 3, if you'll turn back there now, we see how the, some of the religious leaders, and be careful, I want to be careful, not all, of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but the ones who are mentioned here, how they no longer see the Sabbath as a good gift to be received. Rather, it's something that is just to be obeyed. And what is true of Sabbath, this is important for us to wrap our heads around, what's true of Sabbath is true of all of God's laws. It's true of all of his ways in the world. That God does what he does by way of law, by way of his commandment, because he knows how the world works and he wants to conform life to the way he's made it to work. 
And so there's a giftedness, there's a goodness to all of God's laws, to all of God's commandments. Somehow, some way, whether we understand it or not, it's meant to bless life. It's meant to establish life so that we can receive life to its fullest. What we see in Mark 3 is we see the Pharisees, um, the implications, the results of how they no longer are able to receive the gift of God's commandment. Starting in verse 1, we we see that there's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. So it's Sabbath, and that's really important. This is another Sabbath controversy. The fascinating thing about this section right here is a lot of the information that Mark would provide for us normally, he doesn't provide. As a matter of fact, nobody speaks but Jesus. Um, Mark doesn't even um, offer us insight into Jesus's thinking on the situation like he does elsewhere. And and the point of Mark doing this, the way he structures this, just in terms of, of literary structure, is to highlight the importance of this event right here. And, and to highlight the words of Jesus. It's Mark's way of saying, okay, you should be paying attention to everything I'm writing. However, really pay attention here. Right? This is on the, this is on the test right here. Pay attention to what Jesus does, to what he says. So whether or not the man with the withered hand was planted there by the Pharisees, whether or not this was just a part of his regular rhythm of life to be in the synagogue on Sunday to worship God, we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us at all. What we do know is the condition of his hand was most likely a long-standing condition, possibly from birth, and that in a sense, but only in a sense, um, he would have experienced life uh, with a sense of incompleteness. Right Now, not in completeness in terms of being a human before the face of God. He's as complete as any other person on the planet. But in a sense of incompleteness in that he can't do all the things that he would normally be able to do in the community. So there's a sense of limitedness to how he can participate in the life of the community. But we, we can't get confused. That doesn't mean to say that those of us who don't have withered hands are somehow... Um, not limited in other ways. Reality is, is that we are all limited by our own creatureliness. And that should do something to us. That awareness should do something to us in turning us towards God and also turning us towards one another in a greater sense of compassion and love. But in verse 2, the Pharisees watch Jesus. Now, it's fascinating uh, language that Mark uses here. This watching is a careful observation, and it's frequently used to talk about carefully observing the law. So they're carefully observing Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And again, we, we have to be very clear on what's going on. They're not still kind of open to what they think of Jesus. Their judgment has been made. They know Jesus heals on Sabbaths. He's done it before. They are counting on him to do that again. And they're counting on him to do that again so that they can accuse him. And we have to be clear. If Jesus violates the Sabbath by healing, that's grounds for death. Pharisees aren't playing here. They intend to do away with Jesus on the basis of him healing this man on the Sabbath. 
And so it raises a question for us. What exactly did they think the Sabbath was? What did they think the Sabbath was for? Obviously, they don't think that the Sabbath was made for the benefit and the blessing of man. But what do they think it is? And what we know, and and we'll have to kind of go off into the weeds here for a second. Hopefully, we won't run too far into the weeds. What we know is that the Pharisees were consumed with answering a couple of questions. One, what counts as work on the Sabbath? And two, how can we avoid working on the Sabbath in such a way that we violate it? Now, in and of themselves, these are not bad questions to ask, right? I think we would all do well to ask these types of questions. But what is missing from any of this is the idea that first and foremost, the Sabbath is this gift and that maybe they need to receive that gift and all of its blessings before they ask the question, what counts as work and how can I know for certain I'm not violating the Sabbath? It's fascinating. We're we're pretty certain that in Jesus's time, there was already a a set of, of questions and answers about this very question concerning the Sabbath. So when Jesus says to the people, to the Pharisees in verse four, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. There already existed a, a, a list of hypothetical scenarios and answers to all the questions raised by these scenarios. And there's no doubt that the Pharisees would have agreed that, yes, you know, we, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to save life on the Sabbath. And clearly it's unlawful to do harm on the Sabbath or to kill on the Sabbath. For that matter, it's unlawful to do harm or to kill the other six days of the week, right? Like there wouldn't have been any confusion or disagreement on that. But the Pharisees had asked the question, what counts as good? And when does that good become a work and therefore become a violation of the Sabbath law? So you could save life on Sabbath. Pretty much come up with any scenario about Should we save life? And the Pharisees are going to say, yes, you can save life. Now, doing good, that was a little bit trickier. So, for example, there was a hypothetical scenario in the list that I was referring to that raised the question, what happens if a building collapses and there are people in the building? Can we uh, remove the rubble to check on the people in the building? Pharisees answered, yes, you can remove the rubble to check and see if there are people in the building. However, if the people are dead, they are to remain where they are until after the Sabbath. Don't do anything. If the people are alive, you then have to uh, answer the question, is their current situation stuck in the rubble uh, such a dire situation that it could lead to death? If you answered yes, then you could remove the person from the rubble. If you answered no, guess what? Hope you're comfortable. Stick around for a little bit longer. You also couldn't do things like set bones that were broken. So let's say that you do um, remove rubble from a collapsed building. You find someone who is alive. You think, oh, if they stay there, they might possibly die. So I'm going to go ahead and remove them. I haven't violated the Sabbath. And when you pull them out, they have a, a painfully broken leg. Then you have to say, well, stick it out. 
Sundown's coming. We'll reset the bone then. And this is what Jesus is is striking at right here. This, This loss of a sense that God's Sabbath commandments, they're not concerned with that. They're concerned with how do we continue to do good? How do we continue to save life? How do we continue to restore life on this day of all days, the day when God gives to us the gift of having life restored, of having life blessed, of being of receiving rest from the things that come against us. That's what this day is about. But in the Pharisees' understanding of how God's laws, of how his ways work, none of that matters. All that matters is what counts as keeping, what counts as violating. If I know what counts as keeping, I keep it. If I know what counts as violating, I won't violate it. And lost in that is this reality that, oh, I too am a creature in need of God's good gifts. The Pharisees are able to look at this man with a withered hand. They know Jesus has the capacity to restore that man's hand and therefore restore him to the community in ways he's possibly never experienced. And instead of seeing that on this day, this is the day when this should happen, all they can see in the man is a guy who can come back later and get his healing. And it begs the question, would they have felt the same way if it was them with the withered hand? If it was their son, if it was their daughter, if it was their husband, if it was their wife. There, there's, this, there's this dehumanizing reality that occurs when we fail to see God's laws as these good gifts that give life. We fail to see ourselves as creatures who need that. We fail to see others exactly like us. Creatures who have the exact same needs that we do. And there's this inhumanity, right, that grows between us. And it is this inhumanity that Jesus responds to. He looks around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, this language of anger and grieved, Mark only uses this language concerning Jesus one other time in his gospel. And so it highlights the the depth of Jesus' response to what is happening here. And what he's responding to is not not like when I was seven or eight and I didn't understand my dad's reason for um, not allowing crawdads to be in our pool, right? What he's responding to is a people who they understand. They know this. The hardness of heart is a moral quality. It's a spiritual quality. They know what's true. They simply don't care. And that is what angers and grieves Jesus so deeply. They don't care because they don't think they need the gifts that God offers. And Jesus responds to that. The irony in this passage is, is it's rich, but it's also a tragic irony. When Jesus heals the man, he says to him, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Every list we know of that talk about healings and when a healing violates the Sabbath uh, includes things like making potions or 
um, doing some kind of work where you're, you're, you're making a material that you're going to use in the potion or whatever. Um, and so that's why you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. But no single list exists whereby speaking and healing by the spoken word is a violation of the Sabbath. So Jesus heals in such a way that he is not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. They have absolutely nothing to accuse him of. And what do they do? They go out and immediately hold counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And we have to understand what's happening here. They know they have nothing to accuse Jesus of. But they also know people who do have political power, who can get the job done, if you will. The Herodians actually happen to be the Pharisees' kind of sworn enemies. Most days of the week, these two groups do not like each other at all. But the Pharisees are so intent on destroying Jesus that they actually bypass the reality that they have nothing to accuse him of. They go to their sworn enemy and they begin to take counsel with them about how they can destroy Jesus. And it raises the question, what is at work in their hearts that they would respond to Jesus this way? This man who intends to restore life to another person on the Sabbath. What is at work that you would respond to that by wanting to destroy that? And I think what we see in this passage, what grieves Jesus so much, is that they no longer see the world at all in a way that says, I am a creature, I have needs that only God can meet, and God is good to meet those needs, that God gives us the gift of his laws, he gives us the gift of his ways, his commandments in the world, and I need that in order to live. There's a spirit of self-groundedness, of self-sufficiency, right, that sees oneself as being almost the ground of one's own existence, as being the source of one's own life, closed in on oneself, not turned outward in faith, recognizing the need that we have. And it's easy for me, I'm not going to speak for you, it's easy for me to read this passage, which is a passage that has haunted me over the years. It's one that I've come back to many times in my own life and wrestled with. And it's easy for me to kind of put the Pharisees on the hook, right, and to leave myself off the hook. But I also know that oftentimes this type of hard-heartedness is at work in my own life. I know it whenever I can look at my life and I can see the lack of just basic concern and care, compassion and empathy for others who have a need incredibly similar to my own. But all I can see is their need, not my own. And so there's this distance that, is, that exists between us. And I also know how often I fail to just straightforwardly, openly and honestly recognize that every breath that I take has nothing to do with me. The fact that I continue to draw breath has absolutely nothing to do with my own being. It comes to me as gift by way of God. 
to recognize my own sense of dependency, of contingency, that my life is derived from God's goodness, derived from his wisdom, derived from his love. And so I wrestle with, God, how do you want me to respond if, if the reading and the preaching of God's word is this event whereby God summons us and we respond, God, what is it you're summoning me to? How is it that I am to respond? And I don't have any magic formula, any method. All I know is that it seems that God calls me to, to plead with him, to ask him, God, please lay open my heart that I would see where this type of hard-heartedness is at work in me. Help me to see where it is that I don't see myself as being in need of your good gift of the law, of your commandments, of your ways. Help me to see the spirit of self-sufficiency that's at work in my own life, so much so that there's a hardness from me towards other people who have the same needs that I do. We don't ask God to lay us open in this way in order to leave us there, in order to leave us in a state of despair and hopelessness. We we do this because we believe by faith that God will keep his promises to us, to respond to us and to give to us exactly what we need so that we are no longer people of this hard-heartedness. We trust that when God says that we are dead to sin, that that is true, and we lay claim to that. We trust that the reality of the new birth in our lives, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, can do this great work in us, whereby we are no longer hard-hearted in this way, but we instead know what it means to receive the gift, the good gift of God's ways, of his laws. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, your word tells us how good you are, how you graciously give to us all that we need for life with you. We pray that you would work in our hearts this day, drawing us closer to you in faith. Help us to see the goodness of your ways and to trust that what you call us to do and how you call us to live truly is for our good, for our deep joy, and for our contentment. We pray, Father, that you would work in us that we might increasingly become a people willing to do your good in this world. May we be a people who take great joy in doing good and restoring life. Pray that you would keep us close to you and to one another. We pray these things in the name of the one who is, who was, and who is yet to come, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I'd like to remind you that there will be elders up front to pray with you as you have need and would encourage you to bring your needs to the elders and receive the gift of prayer. And now please receive this as God's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.